0: Listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. This discussion is with Professor Sandra Gunning. Dr. Gunning is a literary scholar working jointly in the Department of American Culture and the Department of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor. Currently, she's at work on an alternate black literary history of the American Civil War. In today's conversation, we discuss Dr. Gunning's Moving Home, Gender, Place, and Travel Writing in the Early Black Atlantic, where she examines 19th century African diasporic travel writing to expand and complicate understandings of the black Atlantic. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Uh, So before we delve into um, your book, I wanted to start by asking you the origins of this project, so a sort of invitation to narrate us, how you came into it, what sort of concerns personal, ethical, and philosophical drew you to the questions in moving home? Uh,
1: Thank you for the question. So I'm um, a Jamaican immigrant to the U.S. I've been here over 30 years my mother's family um were lebanese immigrants to the Caribbean, not just to Jamaica but I'm from Jamaica right There were immigrants from um the Middle East around world war one first to Haiti and then they moved to Jamaica. My father's family are afro Jamaican, and they have Different members of the family have been migrating and moving around from Australia to God knows where. (laughs) You know, I have relatives on almost every (laughs) sort of continent. Um, So I kind of, you know, even though my my training and my you know early publications are would be firmly in the context of African American studies, there's a part of me that's always thought globally. Right. And in terms of different notions of what African-American might mean. And I actually don't see a division necessarily between African-American studies and diaspora studies as somehow completely two different things. And you can't, you know. Um, So that's that's part of it. Um, And. You know, part of me just wanted to think about these issues. And I gave myself permission that why couldn't an African-Americanist also look at African studies? But I was also frustrated, you know, when people would write about something like Liberia, the American colonization of Liberia with ex-slaves. The book would end with, and then they landed in Liberia. And it was all about the struggle to get there. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? But nobody wanted to talk about um, the politics of being there, Mm -hmm. you know, and and the oppression of indigenous people by the ex-slave settlers Mm -hmm. and why that was an important story and why that story should be, for example, part of African-American study, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So those were the things that motivated me. You know, and then of course when you write a book, you you, you start with what you think you're going to find, or what you're hoping you're gonna find, but you find so much more, and then that changes what you think the project is really about. And that was um there's a lot of things that happened in the writing of the book that astonished me about what I was finding and especially when it comes to Sarah Forbes Bonetta. You know, so it was a journey Uh, Definitely a learning experience and a journey that took me in surprising places.
0: And I think that's what I like. You kind of, these private places and these small places, you expand on them. And one of a good introduction because I don't study travel writing. Um, You introduce the book and you say, "Well, let's kind of dispel these myths (laughs) about travel writing and how um, it's usually assumed to be only for in like as an innocent pastime." So, can you talk to us about this public belief and how the writers that you choose have been to? you know, the places that they choose to go to. But I also find this interesting how you say the writers, well, travel writers, have not always been to the places that they've wrote about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, this, I'm like, this is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's
1: interesting because, of course, the book gets sort of marketed and categorized and responded to as a book about travel writing, even though I don't see it as a book about travel writing right? (laughs) You know, and I mean, I I always think about how topics exist, not just in an academic setting, but in a lay non-academic setting where travel writing now is, you know, you you know, you have magazines on travel, you know, and so the public is consuming, um, material on travel and tourism. And so that's an established genre at this point, you know, and, um, I'm certainly by no means the first person to call into question you know travel writing as a pastime. I mean you know I, I said a lot of I said to a lot of people um, who have you know definitely done an enormous work that my work is building on, right um, And there are also some material, you know recent books on travel writing in the United States um, but what I, was trying to do was to sort of think beyond travel writing, not as, okay, here's where I went, here's what I saw, but the ways in which different kinds of writing fed into different colonial projects. In other words, the individuals I'm writing about, you know, um, Sarah Forbes Bonetta, Martin Delaney, Mary Seacole, Samuel Crowther, they're writing about their travels and whether or not they like it, they're also using genres that, while on the one hand you could argue, you know, write into being new subjectivities or ignored subjectivities, they're at the same time embedded in a system of world domination you know, by Europe and the United States you know, in terms of building empires. Um, and what I wanted to do in the book was to complicate travel writing, but I don't believe anymore. I used to a long time ago as a you know, much younger <laughs> scholar. I'm not interested in a story of resistance.
2: Mm.
1: I think that that's a trap even though some people will disagree with me. I mean you can write a story of resistance if you want to and that's fine. But I think that people people's motivations, people action people's actions, people's impossible choices, in as much as they are resistant to dominant forces, they're also compromises mm. that end up putting them in different kinds of conditions and, and events that are not necessarily resistant. And so I was trying to capture in the book that sense of compromise, Mm. not as a fault, but as a feature of being human.
0: And I think I got that from your book when you speak about uh, Thomas Jefferson's slave that he impregnated, um, how when she went to Paris, she was able to explore the city <laughs> and i was like oh that's that's an interesting angle that you know we don't talk about because like you said there's this always this resistant narrative um, but also you know in line with this with the with the resistant narrative or the euro american male writer who goes to you know that uses the travel writing genre as a way of it's very I think that's how I got into one of the first books either Joseph Conrad for me mm-hmm. was an example Travel writing and mm-hmm. how essentially it was this thing which is exactly what you say in the book, the survival to the end. <laughs> and like now I've made it to the other side. And so I was like, I don't think I wanna read anything more of this genre. <laughs> but you know, you said and it's really like there's this omniscient narrator and always like spying into other people's lives. That's how I feel about watching The Crown on Netflix. Mm-hmm spying on the queen which makes me very uncomfortable but you know speaking to can you speak a little bit about how these authors that you use like Mary Seacole and Crowther they claim the genre of explore of explore exploration narrative and exploration not just outside but also inside I don't know if I'm mistaking it but there's like this inner exploration yes. as yes well.
1: yes um so people you think usually think of travel writing, especially I mean, okay, so people like Mary Louise Pratt, et cetera have talked about you know you know innocent travel writing of the past and a way that that's part of a colonial a colonizing discourse, even if it's just I just went to this one place and here's what I saw, and here's what I ate, right um, what I was fascinated by with just you know reading different material was the ways in which you know you know with african-american studies for example not just just one thing you know there's the assumption that we have to build a parallel canon that matches the white canon oh well if the white people did this we do the same thing (laughs) you're just saying so we this is alignment and i you know was interested in how many times you had black subjects african subjects you know Westernized, mission-educated, were also in the business of writing exploration narratives. What are you looking at? And exploration narratives, you know, but they're always separated and always seen as white, right? And so I was trying to integrate into the book the kind of basic travel, I did this, I did that, into I'm here because I'm mapping an area, I'm trying to, you know what I'm saying? So, So it was a mix of different kinds of for lack of a better word, mobility genres. Right. That's a kind of an overgeneralization. But um I was also very careful though to recognize that autobiography, autobiographical style writing, you know, in something like Mary Seacole, you know, Story of My Life. You know, autobiography is not transparent. It's always constructed. So with, I mean, so I made a point with all of the, I talk about Mary, I, I mean, Sarah Fogg-Bonetta separately, she's a little different. So I always see these texts as being very public facing, very constructed, and they're particular things that the authors want, you know, how they turn themselves into characters and then how they wish to be regarded. And, you know, and especially with someone like Martin Delaney, how he imagined what he was writing turned him into a, quote unquote, representative black man of the 19th century. Right. Um, But then there were also these moments where you could, I felt at least, you could see where a particular author was taking a very personal experience. It seemed that way and they were turning it into a public facing statement and that somewhere underneath that statement, there was a person, it was sort of a turning it a personal issue. You know, so Martin Delaney, for example, you know, he's trying to argue that, you know, forget about Liberia, we have to move to um, what would generally today be Nigeria, you know, because of Europe, blah, 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 you know, and he gets malaria. And then this is all struck as interesting, and he's he's very ill, and he's ill for most of the narrative. I mean he doesn't talk about being ill, but if you cross reference his travel narrative with that of his traveling companion um Robert Campbell. Robert Campbell, oh, as we got here, we had to stop Delaney couldn't ride anymore <laughs> he had you know he had to, he had to put him in the shit, you know, so he was ill, and he had to at one point just stop you know and be be sort of treated. You know, uh, and just sort of hospitalized in a sense when he was in Liberia, but the, the disease kept, you know, kept it's kept it's it took a toll on him. And he talks about getting in his book, you know, you, you know, you, he's describing the process of of suffering from malaria, mm-hmm. and he turns it into this metaphor mm-hmm. of it's a transformational process where you lose your interest in America and you lose your desire to be American and return home to America. And when you recover the sense of relief from the recovery is actually a sense of relief that you're home, quote unquote, in Africa. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So I just thought that was amazing. You know what I'm saying? Um, (laughs) So I try to look for those kinds of moments. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Um, and of course, that's just my interpretation. The harder part now was dealing with Sarah Forbes Bonetta, who mm-hmm. you know, there's so much mythology around her in both Nigeria and Britain. Mm-hmm. And um, I did a, I mean, I did an enormous amount of original research. that was a very difficult chapter to write because her archive is spread. Around, I mean, there's parts of her archive in the Nigerian National Archives, part of her, her materials are, you know, it's like tracking down even microfilm, f- that would, con- mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, these original missionary society, church society archives, and you know, um, which library had the proper, the actual microfilm that could track, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then you're what you're having to do is read other people's comments about her,
2: yeah.
1: right, to figure <laughs> out what was going on. And then she had her own letters and a very short diary, right? And again, I don't want to read them transparently. Oh, okay, she's not feeling well, this means this and this and this. This is what she really thinks. Because, of course, mm-hmm. in the 19th century, people knew their diaries were read by other people, <laughs> They knew their letters were collected, and you know, and in fact, the cache of family letters after she died, there was a cache of family letters and writings, and they got passed around in her family. This is my conjecture until they finally were auctioned, and then this uh, late um, uh, African American sort of young adult writer and I I'm blanking within his name now, I'll get it in a second. Um bought the letters
2: mm-hmm. and
1: just kept them. It's like, you know. <laughs> and and you know, Never and then did
0: with them. sorry, what? Never did anything. Well
1: he with wrote them. he wrote um a book called At Her Majesty's Request which was a um Walter Dean Myers, that's his name, mm-hmm. and it's it's a very, I would say it's maybe a, 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 a children's book, um, and it he used some of the letters that she had written to fill out her life. You know, she had been um, a slave in what's now Benin, and she was a child, and one of the potentiaries, one of the, you know, uh, these British naval captains in the anti slave trading squadron on the uh, Atlantic side of the African coast. Part of their job was to negotiate to end the slave trade in the, on the continent. So this guy comes and he finds her. And the King Gezo, he's the one in that most recent movie, right? <laughs> About the Amazons, right? Yeah.
2: You know, he
1: he, he he says, oh, well, as you're leaving, let me give you a gift for Queen Victoria that you love. And, she, you know, he gives her, he gives Captain the captain this slave child, knowing, of course, he's going to offend Queen Victoria, who is rapidly anti, right? So it was a total attempt by, you know, the king to just say, you know, up yours. <laughs> um, you know, I, um I'm sorry. I want to uh, be a little clearer. So, how do you write about a subject who is, even in her own time, forced to be on display to represent everybody else's opinions, whether they're political opinions about abolition? What does it mean that we rescue a slave, an African slave girl, we can turn her into, you know, a civilized subject, and she has to? reproduce what we wanted to reproduce as a civilized subject so that we can, you know, f- further our aims as, as you know, British abolitionists. So I just felt like her story was so curtailed by all of these demands. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I, I don't think, uh, I would never say that I'm trying, uh, that I could recover her real personal feelings. But what I did see in her letters and in people's letters about her, were the ways in which people were anxious about her doing things on her own without permission. There's so many moments where people are saying, like her husband says, you know, you're, you're on a ship going to Liverpool. You know, don't do this. Don't do that. So he's giving her all these instructions. Of course, she's on a ship on her own. He wouldn't know if she does. You know what I'm saying? And you see her in the letters contemplating, hmm, should I do this? <laughs> yeah, you know and the very fact that she's entertaining the idea, you know what I'm saying, is is really interesting. Um, um, And then ways in which she does use her agency in negotiating things for her community, and it's through her, you know, she's enmeshed in all of these relationships with the Victorias, Queen Victoria, Queen Victoria's family, the palace staff, the Church Missionary Society staff. And she's mm-hmm. sort of using all of these things to make requests and make demands without seeming to. Mm-hmm. And that's to me, spoke a lot about her personality. But I would never say I know her, who she really was. <laughs> so I kind of want to steer readers away from that because we never know. But you can mm-hmm. see glimpses
0: mm-hmm. in
1: that context.
0: And it's always that these letters and these diaries are—they were a private space that we now have access to. But but you um, see, but they're not private though. Well, yeah, but st- but private in the sense that between when she was writing this, the the genre, it was that space for women. To oh yeah, share yes. Their thoughts. Before everyone else got a hold of them, well, but yeah, even yes. though in the sense that they're not private, but there was that one moment when they're sitting down and writing that letter. Yes. Um,
1: yes, and I mean, and it is a mix of the private and the public. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um,
0: That's actually interesting. Well, now I have a question. So, when are you also suggesting this idea that when they're writing these letters, we think about them as? Private, Maybe like kind of... Because it is a myth probably But understanding that they're writing these letters And they sort of know that as they're writing That this is also public Is that okay? Yes So,
1: (laughs) you know, certainly At different points It wasn't just maybe her But you have people publishing their letters
2: Mm.
1: So the letters become a public statement about oneself I mean, if I'm thinking about... um, Oh, who wrote "Amazing Grace"? The former slave trader turned minister. Um, uh, he'll he'll come back to in a minute. I'm I, you know. Um, I'm looking it up as I'm talking to you. <laughs> um, the hymn, right? But the point I'm getting at is, um, you know, in the 18th century, people are publishing their letters
2: mm-hmm. um, to
1: to. to 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 and your letters to family members, you know, and talking about things that are deeply moving, you know, but they're there also on display publicly. So you see the emotion on display. So that was an expectation. It was a way of revealing who you were by publishing your letters. You know. Um and then I know that when as were writing diaries, the mothers would read the diaries to understand what's going on. What is she doing? You know what I'm saying? And there's stories of oh. of white daughters writing two separate diaries. One is a diary that the mother is going to look at, and the other <laughs> diary is the private private diary. You know what I'm saying? So this sense that women are writing, and you're right, they do sit down and they're just contemplating things, but they're also aware, you know, of the writings being scrutinized. Or letters, yeah. you know, you're you, you giving a letter, you give it to, you know, you think about Pamela, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the novel, insert novel by Richardson, where, you know, the letters are passed around and you give it to the servant to give it to somebody else, yes. you know, and it gets intercepted and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I think just for Bonetta herself, I think she was so scrutinized mm-hmm. that she had to be completely circumspect. You know what I'm saying, and the number of times I'm sure she loved her husband, but the number of times he would give her these rules when they were away from each other, so she's in Britain, she's you know she's having her son and she's lying in lying in in Britain, and he's writing to her and telling her, don't do this, don't go out don't don't talk to these people you know, and it's interesting, but the letters from from other people turn into these. The evidence of helplessness, mm. you know, it's this command, but it's a command that you are never sure will actually ha- would have been followed. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And in fact, she didn't <laughs> follow some of the commands. It's clear from all the things right? she was doing. And so the letters also become a way in which it sort of revealed the helplessness of her caretakers when she's on a journey and when she's an adult and she's on chaperone because then she has to make the decision whether or not to follow. And that again speaks to personal politics
2: yeah.
1: and the sense that she, you know, how is she able to show agency? Mm-hmm. Even as she's, you know, she's her letters, everything she's written, if you read it, it's absolutely, you know, character wise, there's no reproach. She's an excellent mother. She's an excellent wife. She's an excellent Christian. She represents everything that people expect of her in in the actual you know private papers, and yet if you cross reference everything, you start to see even in this excellent public face, you know there are ways in which she's pushing back.
2: Yeah.
1: It took me a long time to think that through and to argue why this would be travel writing, but I think if it's if if you think about it as writing that's produced in this context of travel not for not for enjoyment but she's Mm -hmm. sent all over the place because her husband wants her to be on tour in britain to show the world how much money he has and how successful you know colonial subjects are in lagos the queen sends her to sierra leone because you know Well, she has, by then, she's developed um, pneumonia, uh, uh, tuberculosis. So the idea is Mm -hmm. whether it's better. But then she's, there are these flu of letters. How is she behaving? What is she doing? You know what I'm saying? And so there's this attempt to track her.
0: As well, because when you and I think that's another question I have. This policing of women's bodies yes. in yeah. and now I'll correct myself. Instead of saying tra- I feel like saying more mobility writing <laughs> in this <laughs> genre of mobility because it you know it also but it's this policing um, that we really need to like look at a little bit different. But can you speak to that? The gender difference of
1: yeah, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because. Um, if if you look at the, the my so my chapter on um, Mary Seacole is mm-hmm. is had a, yeah. you know it, it's an interesting history that I have with that chapter because it was one of the first things I wrote and I published it in an article and in Jamaica Mary Seacole has always been seen as a heroine you know and there's a dormitory at the University of the West Indies named you know mm-hmm. Seacole Hall and so I grew up hearing about Mary Seacole. And then you know there's a kind of resurrection or an attempt to, you know, exert in Britain by Afro-Britons, Britons of color, that Britons of color matter. So she's one of the figures who gets chosen as a kind of a representative figure of being a person of color and British. And then there's a whole bunch of messages around her there, right? And what is interesting is to me, there's long been this policing of black women and sexuality during the age of slavery. They're abused, they're raped, you know, their sexual agency is is warped and taken away from them, and they have to do all kinds of somersaults to try to exert control. Um, and you know, early black feminists—meaning mean, the early part of the 20th century into you know the 80s and 90s—are trying to say, "Well, we're not going to talk about sex,"
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: because they they have to be protected.
2: Mm-hmm. But of
1: course, as people like Farah Jasmine Griffiths, et cetera, have said, yes, but they they're still sexual, and if you don't talk about sex, then you then you are actually denying a part of their humanity, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I wanted to talk about in that chapter, you know, was the, you know, uh, the title traveling with her mother's tastes and her mother, just like her was mixed race hotel keeper. And, you know, some of these mixed race hotel keepers were the mistresses of white men who freed them and left money for them, or they were the children, you know what I'm saying? And they may or may not have been involved in prostitution. They may or may not have, you know what I'm saying? And it's not that I'm trying to highlight this as a fault or to say, oh, Mary Seacole was loose. She was a, but, but the idea is what is the reality that she's coming out of where women like her in the Caribbean are using everything at their disposal? And if they're in situations where they are, are made to be sexual laborers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what are they exacting? from the people who force that labor out of them. And the fact that so many of these women, after, you know, in old, when they got older, had money now to do whatever they wanted. is something that you need to pay attention to. So, so what is hilarious is, um, you know, I, I mean, I had, Correspondence with a, this woman in Britain who's like, "Oh dare you talk about those things," you know, like, you know, you know, and and the fact that you're listening to rumors that she had a daughter, or of Regla, and I was like, "But that was a reality," you know what I'm saying, and rather than pretending Mary Seco is a saint, can we imagine her in her context and what she had available to her and how she used it, right? And
0: you may very clear because you said he was responsible for her own survival so what does that all entail in to be a saint you know quote unquote in this particular context and time it's you know it's yeah it's something to poke holes at (laughs) and you know and I think two things can coexist at the same time it doesn't mean that she um doesn't mean that she was like you said just loose all over the place but also Having to survive on her own terms, because I like that you did talk about, and I did have that question for you, for Mary Seacole in terms of, like, this financial um, autonomy that she, how did she do that, and what were your findings, that, like, that journey you went through of having to sift through that material, you know? I
1: mean, I think that, you know, I don't, I mean, she was never rich. She was never wealthy, right? I think there were many times that she was just probably hanging on by her fingernails, but I feel as if when she would, you know, she made a point in her in her um, travel narrative autobiography to say, you know, I never charged the the poor, you know, rank and file soldiers for anything when I was in the Crimea and I was helping them. They got everything free. I didn't charge, but I charged the officers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And she made sure that that based what she was saying was, I subsidized the free free care I gave to the ordinary soldiers with the money that I took. And her prices were high. And they're willing to pay, they wanted all to get, you know, the delicacies that she had prepared to them from home. But she was very you know, upfront, they can afford it. You know, and I mean, there's a, one, one sort of white woman who was there, talked about her usurious prices, you know what I'm saying? Which is sort of really interesting. But she was clearly aware that, you know, money mattered and how could you shift the money around from different contexts in a crisis situation?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know what I'm saying so that is something that also doesn't make her a saint because she was taking advantage of one population in order to help another population. Mm-hmm. but she I think
0: thatevangel exactly
1: but <laughs> exactly, but I think that that's part of her genius, and that's what. Made her who she is. Yes. You know, you talk about policing women's bodies. I see the attempt to turn these individuals, historical you know subjects, into that's also policing. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to know all of these more, you know, for lack of a better word, compromising details because it's going to tarnish the image. And if you tarnish the image of Mary Seacole, you're tarnishing the image of all people of color. Britain. <laughs> of course not. You know what I'm saying? So, if anything, I can't claim to say this book is about their real lives, but it's about, if anything else, it's about the conditions that produce the kind of public facing, you know, self sort of characterizations that show up in their texts. If that makes any sense.
0: It does. And another um, person I also want to touch on was. What were your first impressions about Crowther? Um, because, I, you know, this was it was very interesting to read about um, what the African, you know, convert would have to say, this uh, civilizing mission of Christianity. And now you hear about it from the other side. Um, so how, how was getting that? Yeah, the that
1: Crowther chapter for me was a transformative chapter just in the early research stages. Like I could write mm-hmm. about... Caribbean, or just American, you know, American Hemisphere characters, Anglophone characters, that wasn't difficult. And of course, I'm a feminist, so you can talk about women. But I knew if I was going to write about Crowther and any other man, I had to think through a gender lens. And of course, I'm not an Africanist. So I had to do a a ton of research. I had to educate myself, not just about, you know, pre-colonial specifically Nigeria and Sierra Leone, and the different policies in the Brit- Britain and the whole, you know, the, the impact of the church missionary society. So I had to enter a world that I was not familiar with. Now I had colleagues who were, you know, in African studies who were really helpful, but of course you have to sit there, right? <laughs> <laughs> they can't do the work for you. And I didn't know what I was gonna find. I didn't, I didn't, you know, but I said, let me just trust the process and see what's there. And then um, a lot of Crowther's speeches and, you know, letters are reproduced in various biographies and articles about him. But I decided to actually go back to the actual source to look at the manuscript. I did pay pay a visit to University of Birmingham, where all of his materials are in the archive. But you can also get facsimile copies, you know, on microfilm. So I did some of that work with Mac's facsimile copies at the Library of Congress, and then I also went to find if there's anything else that didn't make it into the microfilm. And of course, there were some, you know, bits of ephemera that were interesting. But when I went back to his original writings, I saw where his writings were excerpted. You could see on the page that somebody had read a letter or a or a diary extract, and then somebody had taken a pencil and just put an X through something. And if we look at the publication of it, it the, the x out part was missing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So they decided, well, we don't want him to say this, you know. And so it was fascinating comparing what what the meaning of what he said was, originally what he wanted intended for us to know versus what and he's also of course policed and he knows he's being policed because he's also just like Seraph of Bonetta he's also supposed to represent as a rescued quote-unquote rescued slave you know who's Christianized he's also supposed to represent the promise of abolition and that you know um so he's on display but it was interesting to see how his own writing was manipulated You know what I'm saying? So just methodologically, but also helping me think about Black writing, African writing in this period and mission. You know, the impact of mission as a form of control. Um, His chapter just opened up so many different worlds for me, for me to understand what it meant to think about Sort of West Africa and the Americas in the same moment. And I don't think there's enough of that. There, mm-hmm. People do that work when they look at sort of post colonial movements or independence movements and black power movements in the 20th century or Black Lives Matter, you know, and how it gets expressed in different parts of the African diaspora. But nobody goes back to the 18th century or the 19th century. <laughs> I'm saying and thinks through that because the assumption is everybody is a slave right and and africans are doing what the africans are doing and only the africanists who study that area can talk about it and that's one of the things i find extremely limiting about african-american studies um broadly defined because i mean not everybody is doing that but it's Mm -hmm. kind of when paul gilroy talks about the black atlantic and you have this big this is before your time, sorry. I'm using you know age. I,
0: I have to study it. <laughs> yeah, but
1: but you know, when the book came out, there were all these these Yes, of course, forget the national, the <laughs> toss the local. Antoinette Burton, historian, writes the, the article, Who needs the lo- Who Needs the National? She was actually advocating that you still have to use that category. But the ways in which everybody was advocating for black transnationalism which I which just kind of like that's too simplistic,
2: mm.
1: right? Mm. And, and black transnationalism was always only the Harlem Renaissance and onwards. What, nothing happened before that, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> or they would look at whatever happened previously as this is, this is the background to the flowering of black, tra- black transnationalism. No, uh, not necessarily, you know, because everybody wants this narrative that presents black unity Black and African unity right and and I just felt like you know how much are we are we, we need to think about our own motivations, and in trying to create a story like that, and there are necessary reasons politically for a story like that, there are other stories that we are denying, and other complications mm-hmm. that we're not looking at
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I'm not attacking anybody's work, I'm just saying <laughs> that this is sort of for me, you know and I guess. To go back to one of your earlier questions about where, what was the genesis of the book, I think a lot of it has to do with my own struggles as an immigrant to kind of define who I am now relative to what the census says about me, you know, versus the fact that my identity as somebody who's also Arab, you know, is not visible through the category African-American. Mm-hmm. much less my Jamaicanness, even as I operate <laughs> in, Amer- in an American context, you know. I mean, that's just, it is what it is. I'm not complaining. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you look at everything that's sort of complicating an immigrant identity, for example, you know, even the bootstraps argument—oh, this person comes over and they just bring you know—and his immigrant story—that is just so simplistic. And I, my job, my job, as I see, it, is to complicate all of the things, all of the feel-good stories that we have, not to trash them, but to try to say there is more here.
0: Mm-hmm. Because I, it's it, very reactive to just um, right. to limit it to that.
1: Range. Can I mention one thing that it, it comes up in the in the? The the quarter at the end.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I I end the book with um, a kind of a looking forward to other possibilities, and I bring in two stories of you know a, a late nineteenth century black sailor working in the sort of I guess merchant marine for you know in a British colonial context. I won't talk about him, and the second one is about, um, and you know, he's now talked as an African American, um, you know, explorer Matthew Henson, who goes to the North Pole, and of course, you know, there's so much celebration of him, and there's a statue and um, you know, recovery of his efforts, the fact that he was treated horribly, you know. Richard Perry was a racist, even mm-hmm. though, you know, um, you know, so there's a lot to celebrate about Henson.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But what I learned, and this is something, you know, if there are any students here, I want to encourage them, read outside mm-hmm. your area. And so I was uh, fascinated by Henson and him going to, you know, the North Pole. But I started reading work on this um, Arctic studies, Let's do African American Arctic studies, and Arctic. scholars writing about sort of Indigenous-white contact, and the whole notion of Indigenous women and white explorers.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
1: I use that frame to look back at Matthew Henson, not as as the frame of the African American hero,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but he's outside of you know the black Atlantic he's he's you know the diaspora is with him when he's at the North Pole but it's not the African diaspora in a traditional way Mm -hmm. and the Inuit are the ones who saved their lives by making the clothing by hunting for them because they were holed up you know I mean you know they couldn't leave and the story goes oh well the reason why they survived was because Matthew Henson you know, learned the language and he could talk to them, et cetera. And I'm like, yeah, but they're doing things that, I mean, it's, it's, it, you're just simply moving from a white dominate, dominant narrative to a black male, you know, so that's not good enough, right? And what I was learning from the material I was reading on Arctic studies and ingenuity was, okay, so Matthew Henson, just like the other men, impregnated these women. And when they left, they left children. So how how do you think about that? And how do you think about these women whose voices are not there? And what struck me, if you look at the end of Henson's story, you know, Negro at the North Pole, so he has a list where he names every single indigenous person that he worked with, which of course is a tribute to them, Mm
2: -hmm. you
1: know, and that's amazing. But if you turn the page the next thing is an ethnographic account which is incredibly racist
0: <laughs> which is exactly what you know the french did to the west so it's, it's like a reproduction of just everything once again exactly
1: and i i think that there's a lot more there that needs to be explored and it means g- going outside of african american studies because now you're dealing with issues around indigeneity dealing with issues around a different kind of landscape other than the African continent or the Caribbean. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. so that's something I'm going to follow up on. But mm-hmm. I think that this is what I mean about African-American studies. There are things in African-American studies where you need to look at it from a local perspective. You need to look at local struggles mm-hmm. and local, you know, traditions, etc., and that's fine. But I think you also need to push against the boundaries that make it only local. And somebody like Matthew Henson, for example, he's, he's a, a hero, you know, in an American context,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but what does it mean when he's dealing with indigenous people and he's an American,
2: mm-hmm.
1: just like the, the white Americans. It's, it's not a simplistic Americanist because he's black, but they're all outsiders. That makes any sense?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, um, you do speak a a little bit about that, like the contacts when the traveler goes to these other places and what does that look like, right? Um, But I guess the next question I have for you is, you've mentioned a lot, of course, over the past, just, just so much that, fills in the understanding of how you posited, you know, your your argument the way you did, what is something you would want readers to take away if you've, I don't know if you, you when you were writing this book you were like, oh, I have a specific audience in mind, or but what's something that you want?
1: Um, What, what two things, I mean, I always write with students in mind mm-hmm. some undergrads probably, I probably wouldn't give them parts of my book to read because they were like, this is really boring <laughs> but so, speaking for graduate students, I'm very old-fashioned, and you know, a friend of mine talked about there are two different models of scholarship, and this is going of to offend some people. Maybe it's a joke, you know. There's the industrial model, and then there's the post-modern the the industrial model. Is you're toiling in a library and an archive, and you're spending hours and hours and hours, and then the post the postmodern is that you come in and you give a talk about the circus or something, you know? <laughs> it's just sort of it's a performance. I mean. I am old fashioned in that sense, because I do think that there's a lot there in archives and in material that people say, oh, that's the past. Um, So what I was hoping to do is to provide a model of scholarship for students where, you know, it's it's, it's not, you shouldn't aim for, I'm gonna toss out Foucault, I'm gonna toss out people who wrote before 1950. Because that's just not relevant. They're all relevant, right? You, and you can't get all of that information now. But after um, you know thirty plus thirty-five years, I've built up a huge, you know, storehead in my head. So I might have begun in one limited place, but you always want to expand, right? And so it's a sense of what can you do with what you have. You can't know it all in the beginning. But over the course of a career, you know, you have to be building and expanding and you have to be able to create sources in your footnotes that people can follow so that they can know where you came from because that's building the next generation or building, bringing in readers so that they can do maybe research inspired by, even if they they don't agree with you, it's in research that can respond to what you're doing. I think the other section, the other thing was to talk to African-Americanists and to try to suggest the value in thinking as an African Americanist about not Africa in quotation marks, not Africans in quotation marks as those people who live over there, but of uh, people with individual, very complicated, like Crowther, very complicated sort of personal and ethnic histories,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, And the ways in which you could compare and contrast that with the very equally complex subjectivities, let's say, in the United States, you know, in the pre-war period. And to suggest to people, look, it's okay to do this research. I'm not claiming to be an Africanist. But I'm benefiting from and drawing on and learning from my Africanist colleagues to try to look back at my own field and find ways to think and and see new things. Mm. So that would be the audience. And I guess I also, in the book, I'm gently trying to push back. I hope this came out against just opting for the feel-good narrative of resistance. Mm -hmm. Mm. These people I write about, you know, Robert Campbell, um, Martin Delaney, Mary Seacole, Nancy Prince, they face tremendous pressures. I mean, getting food to eat, you know, just sort of finding lodging, right? Especially if you were if you're a woman, dealing with immense racism. So of course, they're survivors. Of course, they became experts in resistance. So I'm not denying that, but I also want to treat them as humans and to kind of see what we can learn from the things that they got wrong or or what we today would consider wrong. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Whereas for them, it might have been just the right thing to do.
0: And I think that goes with understanding the context, right? But even when we put those two words together, feel-good resistance, <laughs> which, I mean, we all enjoy to a certain extent, but then we really need to, it's a its a question towards ourselves, why do we enjoy a feel-good Well, resistance? I mean, because,
1: you know, you look around politically and things are crappy. You know, you look around, you know, um, you know, police brutality towards black bodies. And so you want something that gives you hope. You want something that says resistance is possible. And and that's a natural impulse and it's a worthy impulse. Mm-hmm. But I think that we need to recognize it as an impulse for a particular, to help in a particular context. It can't be the only, um, mm. you know what I'm saying, it can't be the only, um narrative. The only, you know, you know, it's, it, when, when I was in grad school, um, you know, there was a joke, especially the, in the generation after that, that whoever the person you write about was, that person had terrible sufferings against all odds. They turned everything around and then they at the end and then they were resistant at the end. And so it was this resistance thesis, no matter what this person was going through. And at the end of the essay or the talk, and then they resisted. And, then <laughs> you know, and and I participated in that, but I've also learned. Well, you know, that's that's a, that is part of our response, and it's a necessary part of the response. But we also have to, in addition to it, not replacing it, but in addition to it, also ask other questions that make things more complicated. So, I'm, you know what I'm saying, so it's, it's, yeah, in addition, side by side.
0: And so, where does this, uh, where did this project leave you? Did it leave you with new curiosities, sensibilities, different directions?
1: <laughs> yes. Um. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, I, there are different people I mentioned and Topics that I mentioned for the book that, of course, you know, I'm keeping notes on them because there's things I want to expand on, like something like, uh, you know, maybe an article on um, Matthew Henson.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Funnily enough, though, it has taken me back to the US context. <laughs> I'm actually working on a monograph now, what I'm calling an alternative black literary history for the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. Which sounds so mired in the US. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but what I'm imagining is there's so little in terms of African American literary studies on the Civil War and it's all about black people fought. You know, there's so many books written about black men in the ranks and even my own ignorance where I got, you know, how many battles did Black soldiers fight in? They fought in every single theater of war, not just glory, you know, not just, you know, Charleston, <laughs> right? Um, they fought all over the place, right? And so, but then there's, so there's this humongous effort. How do we make sure that's recovered history?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But But then under the burden of that and trying to tell a narrative you know, beginning a community narrative that will stick because people keep keep ignoring it. You know, in the mainstream, um, there are other stories under there that book some of the arguments that we're making. You know, um, one of the things I'm writing about now is a form a runaway slave from New Orleans who writes a travel narrative about his time in Europe, the War Breaks Out. He's in Cleveland and he signs up for the war in 1862, except that the U.S. Army was not recruiting black men until 1863. Mm-hmm. So how did he sign up? And if you signed up and you were black, it said on your records, colored. And his army records don't show that. So he passed. How did he pass? He was, well, apparently he was light enough to pass. Mm. and he fought as a soldier in wars, in battles that were not supposed to have black combatants, like Gettysburg. Mm. I mean, there were black, you know, teamsters. There were people there working for the army, hauling things mm. and cooking and that kind of stuff, but these were not soldiers because white soldiers didn't want to fight beside black soldiers. It mm-hmm. racism. So I'm looking at that, and you know he writes his travel narrative when everybody else is writing slave narratives Mm. and he gets attacked why are you writing about this when we're dealing with slavery you know what i'm saying so he doesn't fit a lot of things and he's not passing because he wants the benefits of being white you know he went through excruciating experiences with horrible battles and in the end he has a facial wound where he can't even eat afterwards
2: Mm.
1: so it wasn't like passing for white Gave him some positive, you know. It was it was horrible, right?
0: It went the other direction than what, what usual the narrative right.
1: is, and you could only imagine that, you know, in Cleveland a lot of black men were begging to fight, and they were told, "No, you know, we don't. We're not getting black men because the white soldiers don't want you. Plus, you're lazy, and you're going to mess up the you mess, mess everything up." So I could imagine him joining up because he wanted to fight against slavery, and this was the means to do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's not the narrative yeah. we usually think about. So what I'm trying to do in this new project is, is it's, it's the same impulse to, to look beyond you know, um, positive lessons or inspirational things, and to try to look at nitty gritty things that we don't know how to make sense of mm-hmm. because it doesn't fit a certain narrative that we've come to expect or a tradition of black resistance. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think this guy was queer, on top of all good. of that, so, oh, you know, um, it's taking me in brand new directions, which is what I like, and I didn't know, you know, I'm not a Civil War buff, but, man, do I know a lot more about the Civil War and all the battles and the equipment <laughs> and the <laughs> strategies and the environmental history of the Civil War, so, yeah. you know, so it's, it's the same impulses in those different materials,
0: well, we would love to have you back on to speak. I mean, I'm, I have questions already. <laughs> but um, I think that is just, um, that's just very, there's so many things you said in terms of like, as even myself as a graduate student, right? Like how I should be approaching my graduate work and focusing on that nitty gritty, even if it's not neat, it's messy, but that's where, I feel like that's where hu- humanity is. It's that in that mess. Um, so we're really looking forward to having you back on to speak about <laughs> this next monograph. No pressure, you know.
1: I I I I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I am honored that you decided my book was worth talking about, okay. <laughs> and um, if I you know inspired anybody or got anybody thinking about anything, even if they want to critique my book, that's absolutely fine as long as it's a dialogue. So I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thank you so much, Doctor Gunny.
1: Thank you, Petsy so